Hello, welcome to another episode of Freaking Out About Opening Day with Randy Freaking, the podcast about the history and celebrations of Cincinnati's most revered non-religious holiday. In this episode, we will explore 10 opening days from 1991 through 2000. They include some of the more interesting and controversial years ever. Let's start our voyage with 1991 and a World Series championship celebration. We call 1991 simply Rings. Five weeks after President Bush ordered a ceasefire to end the Persian Gulf War, Cincinnatians were in the mood to celebrate the world champions from 1990. Four preview shows on local TV stations covered every aspect of the day, including live coverage of the Finley Market Parade. On those stations, it was all reds, all the time. Local radio personality Jim Scott perched himself on a billboard above a local bar, Caddy's, to describe the festivities happening on the city streets. Renowned editorial cartoonist Jim Borgman drew a sketch of a plane flying over the ballpark with a banner saying, Go Marge, Love Reds. Downtown streets became fashionably red on the morning of April 8. The outfits included the expected baseball hats, satin somber jackets, and cotton t-shirts emblazoned with the World Series championship logo. There were also denim blue jean jackets plastered with reds buttons, goofy-looking wide rain hats, and big baggy shorts that resembled candy canes. Girls wore red-trimmed, white cotton dresses with Cincinnati Reds fan club on the front. There were even plastic brooms with red bristles, a reminder of the Reds' World Series sweep of the A's. Reds' logos were splattered everywhere. The 1991 rendition of the opening day parade was easily the loudest ever. The record number of entries was 165, and it included 14 bands. There was a first-ever float contest with a requirement that all entries be decorated in red and white. There were also two elephants from the Cincinnati Zoo, antique fire engines, and the now-traditional Clydesdales. Elderly Captain Bingo, who ignored the requirement to wear red and white, strolled along looking like a World War I flying ace in a blue cape. Arriving at the ballpark... Schott repeated a strange ritual that she had initiated in 1990. She pulled a fistful of hair from Shotzi and applied it to the chest of Pinella for good luck. The routine had seemingly brought good luck to the Reds in 1990, so Schott was determined to repeat it. As Enquirer columnist Tim Sullivan aptly wrote, the, quote, bizarre ritual surely constitutes cruelty to managers, if not to animals, period, unquote. I guess Lou Pinella didn't mind, but, you know, he only lasted, what, another year or two. Anyway, after the parade entered the ballpark, the focus turned to the ring presentation. Shot presented rings to anyone who had any claim at all to a ring, including Ron Robinson who was traded during spring training well before the championship run. Shotzi also received the ring 
and it was the only time the crowd booed. The fans loved that the team was generous in giving rings to all the club's officials and the players remotely associated with the championship, but Marge giving one to the St. Bernard was too much even for the Reds' faithful. Schott clumsily presented the rings, giving the appearance that she did not even know the players' first names. Eric Davis was the most expressive player in the ring ceremony. He dashed eagerly from the dugout to accept his ring, faked the move toward the owner's microphone as if to make his own acceptance speech, and then bounced back to the dugout, smiling broadly as he waved his prize. After the Reds defeated the Houston Astros 6-2, fans left the ballpark shouting, Wire to wire, take two. That dream would end with a thud when the Reds won 74-88 and in 1991 and ended in fifth place. 1992, we move on, and this was uh, a worrisome opening day. It's labeled, Nuxall Survives. The Reds have had their share of legendary announcers, from Red Barber and Wade Hoyt to, more recently, Marty Brenneman. However, reverence for the three pales in comparison to the city's love for the old left-hander, Joe Nuxall. For 38 seasons, Nuxall was a true partner in the booth. When he signed off the air after his star of the game show after each game, Nuxie, as he was commonly known, would tell listeners that he was, quote, the old left-hander, rounding third and heading for home. Good night, everyone, unquote. As plans were being made for another opener in 1992, fans learned that Nuxall was scheduled for prostate cancer surgery on February 18. It became a major news story, and the reaction was both swift and heartfelt. Nuxall recalled that get-well wishes came from everywhere, and soon his hospital room was filled with a dozen floral arrangements. The city was holding its collective breath until the folksy announcer was released to work on the final days of spring training, just in time. The game itself was a sellout, and throngs of spectators gathered downtown as well in the damp early morning chill. They jockeyed for the best spot to watch the parade. Fans in the ballpark who had box-level seats were greeted by ushers in tuxedos. Everyone was later introduced to two elephants, Princess Shotzi and Mai Tai, and one of them lumbered out to the pitcher's mound with Nuxall. The center of attention, though, was the old left-hander. He received a thunderous standing ovation when he bounced the first pitch to home plate. No one seemed to notice or care that the American League had once again started before the Reds. And for the first time in 10 years, the Reds lost on opening day. We're now going to switch to probably the strangest four-year period in opening day history. And we're going to start with 1993, and we just call this the Big Dog. After the Reds finished in second place in 1992, Popular manager Pinella resigned to become manager of the Seattle Mariners. Reds fans were stunned. New general manager Jim Bowden, however, discovered the perfect panacea. He hired Tony Perez, also known as 
the big dog. Aside from Pete Rose, Perez was likely the most popular member of the Big Red Machine. The fans were placated, and the opener was sold out in December. Dismay came next, as Major League Baseball suspended Marge Schott and banned her from day-to-day operation of the team while remaining as owner. Schott was accused of making racial and ethnic slurs. At age 32, Jim Bowden took complete control of the club, and he made a flurry of trades and acquisitions. On the morning of April 5, even though Schott had been suspended, she was still an ardent supporter of opening day traditions. She arrived in OTR near the start of the parade, signing autographs and acknowledging well-wishers. The parade, then in its 73rd year, wound its way from Finley Market past Fountain Square with 155 entries with the customary floats, bands, and animals. The organizers of the parade displayed a huge We Love Marge sign on their float near the front of the parade. Thousands lined the streets and many wore Marge shot face masks that had been sold along the parade route. Talk show host Jerry Springer, who was a former mayor and news anchor in the city, served as the Grand Marshal. The wife of the Reds' new manager, Patuka Perez, was accorded the honor of throwing out the first pitch. When she took the mound, her husband Tony moved into position as catcher. Mrs. Perez peered toward home plate like a wily veteran. She playfully shook off the signal her husband gave her. Now that prompted catcher Tony Perez to trot out to the mound for his first discussion with a pitcher as the team's manager. After a brief chat, the catcher gave the pitcher a kiss before returning to his position behind home plate. Mrs. Perez then threw a perfect strike, keeping the ball low. The crowd erupted in laughter and applause. When the Reds were introduced, the spectators noticed a new look. The players' white uniforms featured sleeveless, button-front vests with red pinstripes. The Reds had last worn sleeveless jerseys, including pinstripes, in 1966. Their new caps were white with red pinstripes, a red bill, and a red wishbone C, similar to the caps last worn in 1966 as well. When the game started, Montreal's Felipe Alou and Perez became the first Latin American-born managers to face each other in a major league game. Respectively, they were the fourth and fifth Latin American-born managers in history. Now, on this chilly and cloudy day, Perez got the better of Alou, and the Reds won 2-1. to one. They were really on quite a winning streak between the early 1980s and the mid-1990s. Okay, we move to 1994. We call this ESPN Be Damned. Fans across the country had become accustomed to television and cable networks deciding the dates and times for various sports events. TV executives naturally wanted to schedule games for dates and times that would maximize viewership and advertising revenue. That was one thing for other sports. But Cincinnati fans were left wondering, why would you mess with opening day? 
Major League Baseball had inked a new television deal with ESPN in 1994 that called for the opening of the baseball season to be on the first Sunday night in April. ESPN invited the Reds to host the occasion so viewers around the country could witness the traditions that accompanied Reds openers. The Reds had long asserted that the American League should not start games earlier than the traditional opener in the National League. So, what was wrong? Well, the wrench in the works was that suspended Reds owner Marge Schott, after accepting the invitation to start on Sunday night, belatedly realized that April 2 was Easter Sunday. The Finley Market organizers wanted nothing to do with a parade on Easter. And when Schott tried to back out of the deal, the schedule had already been finalized. Schott claimed ESPN should have told her it was Easter, but she was rebuffed and was told that the official National League opener would be on Easter Sunday night. Schott reacted by saying that the Reds would consider the second game of the season to be opening day. There would be no bunting on display for the national TV audience at the opener, and there would be nothing more than a ceremonial first pitch by the National League president. On Easter Monday afternoon, the city would celebrate opening day. It was really quite a mess. On Easter Sunday, the Enquirer's Jeff Hobson asked rhetorically, Is today opening day? Is it opening night? Is it opening days? The fans could not decide which day to celebrate, but one thing was certain. This was not normal. The ESPN telegast turned out to be a bust, short on festivities and missing the enthusiasm that typically accompanied the opener. The game had all the excitement of a rain delay as the men pranced through empty seats in the upper deck. Fans that were simply bored. The Reds ended up laying an egg in every respect, losing 6-4 to four in front of only 32,803 spectators in 39-degree weather. The fans decided to follow the lead of the owner the next morning and afternoon by embracing opening day number two. Just before 11 a.m., Schott boarded a big red Cincinnati fire truck, pounded on the engine's horn for several ear-splitting blasts, and kicked off the parade. The procession of 175 units was witnessed by spectators standing four to five deep. The Clydesdales were back, Shotzi the Elephant lumbered along, and there were even greyhounds from a dog rescue organization. The crowd waved at the Rosie Reds and the Hooters girls marching team. Two groups of supporters with no overlapping membership. It looked and felt like opening day. Everyone seemed to forget that it was a second game of the season. Now inside the park, the traditional bunting was visible during pregame ceremonies and fans were dressed in red from head to toe and, mercifully, there was sunshine. The players were introduced, wearing emblems commemorating the 1869 Red Stockings, the first ever all-professional baseball team. The crowd reacted as if it was the first day of spring. Then, Gordy Coleman, former Reds first baseman who had died recently at the age of 59, was honored with a moment of silence. The 55,000 and 93 fans who bought tickets apparently knew the difference between a cable television production 
and a baseball season opener. And in the end, the Reds won on a dramatic home run by Kevin Mitchell in the bottom of the 10th inning, and afterward, the town celebrated as if the team had not lost the night before. So we moved to 1995, and we call this not again. More turmoil returned in 1995. A player's strike that resulted in the 1994 World Series being canceled continued in the spring training. The umpires were locked out, and the question was, would there be a season at all? The owners had hired replacement players to start the season on April 3rd, but on the eve of the opener, the owners accepted the union's offer to play without a labor agreement, and they canceled their plan to use replacement players. Instead of starting on April 3, there would be an abbreviated spring training before starting a 144-game season with the Reds opening on April 26, but in Los Angeles. If that happened, it would be the only time the Reds would be scheduled to start their season on the road since 1888. The Reds, of course, immediately petitioned the league to change the schedule and allow the Reds to open at home. A few days later, the league agreed, and opening day was on. Well, sort of on. The parade organizers had planned the annual procession to coincide coincide with the replacement players' opening game on April 3, and it was just too late to ask participants to wait 23 days. There would be a parade on April 3, but it would stop at Fountain Square and not proceed into the stadium. With the ongoing strike and the prospect of replacement players diminishing fans' enthusiasm, the number of entries in the parade was already down to about 125. The streets were less crowded with spectators than usual since now there was no game, and many of the units decided to mock the players and owners instead of celebrating them, as was customary. Members of the Finley Market Association led the ridicule with shirts that read, quote, replacement parade marshal, unquote. A 10-year-old girl, Stephanie Patton, pulled her ordinary red wagon with a three-foot sign backed by a wooden frame and decorated with balloons and a Finley Market pennant. The sign revealed the wisdom or sarcasm of youth. It read, Replacement Float. The float was described as one of the best for producing smiles along the route. A pickup truck sponsored by FM station Warm 98 featured a sign that said, Replacement Fans. There was no indication that these efforts were coordinated, but the message was clear. You can pound sand, players and owners. You can't rain on Cincinnati's parade. Despite the gloomy mood of many fans, the sun was shining. The parade's biggest cheerleader, Marge Schott, once again started the parade by sounding the fire engine horn. Schott handed out team decals during the procession, which lasted more than two hours. The parade featured the usual cadre of politicians, zoo animals, beauty queens, food merchants, and marching bands. And students from the Fairview Bilingual German School were dressed in traditional German garb. Along the way, fans groused about the players and the owners. Bob Layton of Lawrenceburg, Indiana, came to the parade to watch his daughter march in a band 
but he would promise never to go down to the ballpark again. Police officer Dan Mitchell, who had led 20 consecutive opening day parades on his bicycle, called it, quote, the strangest parade because there's no ball game, unquote. By the time the opener on April 26 rolled around, there still was no significant uptick in enthusiasm. Many fans had simply lost interest. The effects of the cancellation of the 1994 World Series and the delay of the 1995 season would be remembered for years. It took until game time on April 26 for all 51,033 tickets to be sold, but despite the sellout, there were 15,000 no-shows. And the Reds apparently could not locate a fan willing to throw out the first pitch, so they turned to an elephant that was actually trained to throw a ball. It proved a fitting symbol. Elephants are famous for their memory, and fans do not easily forget. The player introductions that day received tepid applause. To show the extent of the fans' ire, while the first inning was in progress, a small plane appeared above the stadium. A banner trailed behind it with large red letters, quote, owners and players, to hell with all of you, unquote. Well, all in all, the day was certainly a spectacle, just not the kind that the owners, players, or fans wanted. The Reds lost 7-1 to the Cubs in a lackluster performance. So many spectators had left by the sixth inning that radio announcer Marty Brenneman wondered if the fans had forgotten how long a baseball game lasts. That was an awful year. The strike in 94 was terrible. And we just have to hope that the Players Association and the owners realize that that should never happen again. It almost happened in 2020. A lot of bickering before we got the 60-game season uh, started. Uh, Well, it's going to start in July. Okay, here we go. 1996. We call this Tragedy Strikes. One of the saddest opening days in history. MLB clubs witnessed a 20% decline in attendance in 1995. The 1996 season began with the two leagues sounding like convicts who were seeking parole. Their plea was simple, forgive us and come back. The empty seats in Cincinnati during the 1995 playoffs had become a symbol of fans' anger and loss of interest, as the Reds attracted just over 30,000 or so for the playoff game, the National League Championship Series with the Atlanta Braves. A series they lost, by the way. For the first time in years, though, the April 1st opener was not sold out in advance. Worse, Cincinnati was hit with an April Fool's Day joke in the form of several inches of snow on the ground. Meteorologists had been caught by surprise. Parade coordinator Jeff Gibbs decided the snow would not stop the annual tradition surrounding the parade, and fortunately a warming sun appeared making for more favorable parade conditions. Unfortunately, clumps of melting snow fell from the market's roof onto the heads of high school musicians practicing Louie Louie in the street below. As the snow dissipated, Marge Schott was sure the day had been saved. As was customary, she arrived early with her 160-pound St. Bernard. She was greeted by the Grand Marshal, 
this year the ever-popular former manager Sparky Anderson. Shots sounded the siren that started the festivities, and Mayor Roxanne Qualls presented Anderson with a framed proclamation and thanked him for returning to the city. Qualls said, quote, This is a special day because we have Sparky Anderson back in town. You turned many opening days into victory celebrations, unquote. In the parade, Anderson led the usual array of floats and marching bands. This year, though, camels and llamas became part of the procession, too. Now, the snow likely discouraged some spectators from attending, but the diehards returned to line the streets, and Schott was dressed in a red pinstripe jacket with Marge in large capital letters on the back and a red rose pinned to the front. She waved and carried on as if it were a 70-degree day. Anderson waved as if it was a 1970s victory celebration. The game had not sold out until the morning of the game, a notable departure from the days of sellouts four or five months before opening day. When the capacity crowd of over 51,000 arrived at the stadium, they were entertained by the high-stepping Clydesdales, and Shotzi pranced on the field as a marching band played God Bless America. Anderson threw the first pitch. Ten-year-old Kara Halberslaben then belted out the anthem, and the Reds took the field as their crowd roared. But things were not all right. Two batters and seven pitches into the opener, 51-year-old home plate umpire John McSherry stepped away from his position behind catcher Eddie Taubensee, saying, Hold on a second. Taubensee turned and asked, John, are you all right? But the umpire did not reply. McSherry seemed to motion for assistance before walking toward the backstop from where he had emerged 10 minutes earlier. McSherry then collapsed, and paramedics raced to his side, pounded his chest, pumped an IV into his body, and used electric paddles to shock his heart. The rescue attempts lasted for several minutes on the field behind home plate. The crowd, along with the Reds and the Montreal Expos, stood in silence. McSherry was then taken off the field and rushed to a local hospital, but he could not be saved. He was pronounced dead 54 minutes after his collapse. McSherry had suffered sudden cardiac death, according to the coroner. Sadly, He was scheduled to see a doctor the next day for an irregular heartbeat, and his fellow umpires had asked him to take opening day off. In any event, after McSherry was taken to the hospital, the other umpires vowed to continue play, but the Reds and Expo players refused, some with tears in their eyes. The game was postponed until the next day. Some boos greeted the decision, but that may be because no one had disclosed McSherry's death to the crowd. For all they knew, he had been rushed to the hospital and was okay. Ninety minutes after McSherry collapsed, the flag in center field made a slow, graceful descent to half-staff. The scoreboard simply read, quote, due to the unfortunate circumstance during today's Reds Expo's opening day game, the game has been canceled, unquote. 
it was the most shocking opening day game in history. The only other time in baseball history that a death had occurred on the playing field was during a game 76 years earlier when Cleveland shortstop Ray Chapman died from a pitch by New York Yankee pitcher Carl Mays that struck his head. When the 1996 rescheduled opener occurred the next day, few people were in the mood for baseball. The stadium was half full, even though 53,136 tickets had been sold, including those from the previous day. The umpires received a standing ovation when they walked onto the field, but there was no hoopla. A chaplain said a prayer for McSherry and his family, and the crowd sat hushed during a moment of silence for the fallen umpire. The Reds won 4-1, but the entire day was somber. Now let's turn to 1997. We call this Looking Forward. After three consecutive openers were marred by controversy and tragedy, Reds fans were ready to turn a new page in 1997. There was excitement surrounding the planned construction of a new ballpark that would be less utilitarian and would be designed strictly for baseball. Riverfront Stadium was a lame duck. Despite its days being numbered, it had been renamed Synergy Field in 1996 in a sponsorship deal with a local energy company. The only controversy about building a new park involved its location. John Allen, who by 1997 was the club's interim managing director, worked hard to hasten the renewal of fans' attention after a lot of upheaval in recent years. He brought back Mr. Red, a popular mascot from the Big Red Machine era. Flags were painted on top of the Reds' dugout to commemorate pennant-winning seasons. Two jerseys were displayed on the left field wall to honor manager Fred Hutchinson from the Crosley Field era and Hall of Fame catcher Johnny Bench. A new spongier artificial surf surface replaced the AstroTurf that was worn and rigid. Allen wanted Synergy Field to look like a ballpark that housed the franchise with a proud and distinct history. Allen's moves paid off. Fans eagerly embraced opening day and the first sign of spring. The game was sold out, including all standing room only tickets, and the parade had more than 200 entries. Fans lined the streets five to ten deep, with thousands arriving early to claim prime locations with their lawn chairs. One fan, Jeff Wise, smartly noted, quote, The emphasis is back where it belongs on the game, not on large shot. This year, Baseball belongs to the people again. Look how they've responded, unquote. Mr. Red was greeted like he was a long-lost friend, and the crowd wore red of every shade. Proponents of locating the new stadium in Broadway Commons dominated the parade route. Men, women, and children showed their support for the urban location of the new ballpark by waving yard signs, lifting posters, and holding balloons. Lucy May of the Enquirer declared that Broadway Columns, Commons would be the winner, hands down, if opening day hype decided the future location of the new ballpark. Urban restaurateur Jim Tarbell, dressed in his traditional garb honoring peanut Jim Shelton, walked the parade route and urged supporters to put their signs high in the air. A jazz band blared as the parade entered the field. Dignitaries included two local heroes, Olympic gold 
medaled gymnast Amanda Borden and J.C. Phillips. Marge Schott said a few words that violated a strict reading of her MLB agreement, prohibiting her from speaking for the club, but the breach was ignored, as Schott was still appreciated for her role as a cheerleader for opening day festivities. Ohio Governor George Voinovich delivered the first pitch to U.S. Senator Mitch McConnell of neighboring Kentucky. When the players were introduced, outfielder Reggie Sanders wore his pants bunched at the knees in honor of the Negro Leagues and his favorite player, Cool Papa Bell. Seven-year-old Cincinnati native Kelly Armstrong's voice was strong enough to shake the cheap seats when she sang the national anthem. The crowd roared. A moment of silence then quieted the crowd in memory of John McSherry, the umpire who had passed away the previous season. The play on the field put an exclamation point on the day. NFL defensive back Deion Sanders, newly acquired by the Reds, was Joe Nuxall's star of the game as he garnered two hits and stole two bases. The Reds thrashed the Colorado Rockies with four runs in the bottom of the first inning and route to an 11-4 victory. The run total equaled the franchise record for most runs scored on opening day. The party was complete and opening day was back. Now let's move to 1998 in the year that we call it the trade that rocked the opener. The Reds shocked their fans on the eve of opening day 1998. The club traded its best pitcher, Dave Burba, which tells you something about the quality of Reds pitching back in the day, who was slated to start the season as the opening day hurler on March 31. In return, the Reds received 23-year-old first baseman Sean Casey. Casey was a minor league star for the Cleveland Indians, but he was an unknown commodity in Cincinnati, and this swap rocked already pessimistic Reds fans. Now, Reds general manager Jim Bowden tried to allay the fans' skepticism. Bowden admitted that the Reds were rebuilding and promised, quote, five years from now, fans will look back on this like the Joe Morgan trade in the 1970s. This kid is that type of player, unquote. Now, Cincinnatians are not dumb, and they are well aware that rebuilding is equivalent to saying that the team would not be very good that season. But Bowden's promise was largely fulfilled. Although Casey did not become the star that Joe Morgan became, he was embraced by the fans as he lived up to his nickname, The Mayor. The personable first baseman played the next eight seasons and became a fan favorite and had a good career with the Reds on the playing field. Linda Vester was chosen to throw out the first pitch. A native of Milford, Ohio, which is a 30-minute drive from the ballpark, a quiet suburb, Vester was the anchor of NBC News at sunrise. Finley Market organizers also selected her as the parade's grand marshal. As opening day dawned, hundreds of people scrambled to be on camera on Fountain Square, where Al Roker appeared live on the Today Show to give his forecast. The crowd cheered as Roker predicted an 80-degree temperature at game time. The spectators booed when he declined the sample chili, a Cincinnati delicacy. A few hours later, Vester assumed her duties as Grand Marshal, and after Marge shot, sounded the siren, Vester led the marchers, clowns, and zoo animals 
A special guest in the parade was Kathleen Katie Conway, a Cincinnati police officer who had been shot four times by a gunman two months earlier. Riding in a black Camaro convertible between the color guard and the marching bands, Conway waved to her supporters and received a hero's welcome. Fellow officers, on duty to monitor the tens of thousands of spectators lining the route, saluted her as she passed. Children held up signs and posters with her her name on them. The politicians, basketball all-time great Oscar Robertson, Sparky Anderson, and astronaut U.S. Senator John Glenn followed behind the marching bands. They, in turn, were followed by Miss Chiquita Banana, the Budweiser Clydesdales pulling a beer wagon, and a vintage 104-year-old H.J. Hines Company tally-ho wagon pulled by another eight-horse team. John Allen, meanwhile, was still sprucing up the ballpark. Fans entering Synergy Field noticed that each of the five world championship teams was honored with a placard above the right field wall. Montgomery Inn, a popular barbecue restaurant, launched a rib stand behind the box seat level. And for children, there's a new addition called Kids Zone. Kids could go there to enjoy Sony PlayStation and Papa Shot basketball if they were bored with the baseball on the field. When the parade finally arrived at the ballpark, the sold-out crowd of over 54,000 gave Officer Conway a standing ovation. After the usual festivities, left-handed pitcher Linda Vester took her wind-up and delivered a strike to her battery mate, Al Roker. The season was on, and the hometown girl received a roar of approval. The parade and pregame celebrations would be the highlight of the day, as the San Diego Padres beat the Reds 10-2. Pokey Reese, subbing at shortstop for Cincinnati native Barry Larkin, went down in infamy by tying the modern record in baseball for most errors, four, in an opener. The Enquirer then had one of its most creative headlines of all time. The headline the next morning was, How many E's are there in Pokey Reese? Well, four poking a little fun at Pokey Reese for making four errors on opening day. Okay, let's move to 1999, and we call this one a parade of runs. Anticipation for the April 5, 1999 opener returned to levels that preceded the mid-decade player strike in the infamous ESPN opening night fiasco. The Reds sold out opening day more quickly than in any year since 1993. Now, the logistics for getting around on opening day had become problematic that year for fans. Development along the riverfront had eliminated 1,200 parking spaces, mostly due to the construction of the Cincinnati Bengals' new stadium. That stadium would open two years before the Reds' new ballpark. Fans knew they needed to arrive even earlier than usual just to be sure they could navigate around the construction. Nonetheless, parade attendance was estimated to be the largest in years. One major development in 1999 is that it was Schott's last hurrah as majority owner. For her final act, Schott showed up as early as usual. It's sad, real sad, she confessed to reporters, but she added that she had a good run over 15 years and was proud of the growth of the opening day spectacle. After she started the parade, she chose to retreat to the sidelines. An array of motorcycle police from Cincinnati and Dayton led the 80th annual procession. 
They were followed by fire trucks, soldiers carrying flags, and a handful of military bands playing martial music. The parade featured co-grand marshals, Joe Nuxall and country music legend Kenny Rogers. They were accompanied by the usual array of marching bands, politicians, radio personalities, red cars, and fire trucks. An added treat for the younger spectators were the oversized figures from the popular TV show Rugrats. In total, there were 140 entries, but the highlight for devoted Reds fans was, of course, Nuxall. He rode in the back of a red GTO convertible, and fans left their curbside seats to shake his hand as the procession lumbered along the 18-block route. Two camels separated Nuxall from Kenny Rogers, who could be seen atop a 1957 canary yellow Chevy convertible. One walker was dressed in a dog suit with a seeing-eye person as an attendant, and Jim Tarbell pushed a vendor's cart in honor of the late peanut Jim Shelton. After Nuxall, the biggest ovation was for the Budweiser Clydesdales. Now, ticket holders who chose to skip the parade warmly welcomed the Clydesdales as they entered Synergy Field. Close behind the horses was another country music star, Loretta Lynn. Lynn received a hug from soon-to-be ex-owner Marge Schott and then capped off the pregame ceremony by throwing the first pitch and singing the national anthem. When she neared the end of the Star-Spangled Banner and sang And the Land of the Free, Rita Fleggy of suburban Sharonville took her cue. Fleggy and her assistants opened the doors on a series of pigeon coops and 400 pairs of flapping wings emerged from spots along the warning track in center field. The gray and white birds became the stars of the pregame festivities as they took flight and circled the playing field. Three pure white birds with dangling streamers were released near home plate and likewise circled the field. According to Flaggy, they would find their way home to Sharonville within 20 minutes. As she explained, they don't have to stop for lights like we do. When one of the three white pigeons landed on the scoreboard, Flaggy's daughter predicted the bird would stick around to watch the game. After all, she said, he has a bird's eye view. Although the Reds had a young team, fans were optimistic. And sure enough, under bright sunshine and 70 degree temperatures, the crowd of 55,112 witnessed a parade of runs by the San Francisco Giants and the Reds. They scored a total of 19 runs, but the Giants prevailed with 11 of them. Opening day received rave reviews the next morning. Quote, baseball is back in the Queen City, unquote, a reporter noted, adding that fans did not show the same irritation with club executives and players that they had in the previous four openers. Perhaps the cancellation of the 1994 World Series was finally beginning to wear off. Okay, we're going to end this episode with happy news. The year 2000, and it's simply called Ken Griffey Jr. Comes Home. Named to Major League Baseball's all-century team, while he was still playing, and after playing only 11 years as a center fielder for the Seattle Mariners, Ken Griffey Jr. was a superstar by all accounts. Raised in Cincinnati from the age of six, 
Griffey came to be known as Junior to distinguish himself from his dad, Ken Griffey Sr. Sr. starred for the Reds in the late 1970s. Junior was everything general manager Jim Bowden and new owner Carl Linder wanted for Christmas in 1999. Negotiations that began in early December culminated 45 days after Christmas, but Bowden and Linder got their prized gift. They traded four players for Junior, and he signed a $116.5 million contract for nine years. No acquisition had ever been this big in the history of the storied Cincinnati franchise or any Cincinnati franchise. Every Cincinnati TV station carried the live press conference announcing the trade. Local baseball fans were ecstatic. ecstatic. Even before the Griffey announcement, opening day had sold out in record time of three and a half hours, and when the Griffey trade was announced, the phone lines to the Reds ticket office were so overloaded that 10 additional phone lines had to be installed just to handle fans' orders. The addition of Griffey resulted in the Reds selling a half million additional tickets during the season, even though the team's record proved to be a disappointment. The excitement about seeing Junior play was not limited to Cincinnati. The Reds would play before 3 million fans on the road in 2000, and no club had ever reached that milestone before. With so much enthusiasm for opening day, there were more than 200 parade entrants, and as a result, the parade had to start an hour earlier than usual at 10 a.m. The weather did not match the fans' sunny outlook about the season, as there was a downpour on and on, on and off throughout the spectacle. Shot kicked off the procession, as usual, before retreating to the background, even though she was no longer the owner. Draft horses led the march. The co-grand marshals were not as famous as previous grand marshals, but they were a big hit with the crowd. Six-year-old Whitney Ramos and 12-year-old Robbie Schlunsker were chosen by the Make-A-Wish Foundation. The foundation gives seriously, severely ill children experiences they might not otherwise have, and this was no exception. Whitney was battling acute lymphocytic leukemia, and Robbie had osteosarcoma. Thousands of onlookers cheered the two youngsters. The crowd stood 20 deep on Fountain Square, and thousands of others jammed the sidewalks. Scalpers were hawking tickets that had a face value of $21 for up to $100. Streets were awash with fans of all ages wearing replicas of Griffey's number 30 jersey. Men dressed as horses pulled the barrel houses Brewing Company's keg float. The rain seemed to have no effect on the fans' good mood. As game time approached, the rain continued, but a Mardi Gras-style party was in progress in the plaza outside the stadium. A local rock band, big in Iowa, played before die-hard fans outfitted in rain slickers. The party had moved to the plaza from the heart of downtown. Inside the ballpark, Representatives from 176 media outlets were scrambling for seats in the press box. Credentials had been issued to 63 newspapers, 4 magazines, 55 photographers, 36 television stations, and 18 radio stations. The governor of Ohio, Bob Taft, took the day off to throw the first pitch in his hometown. The hit group, 98 Degrees, 
played the national anthem. Five planes buzzed with advertising banners over the stadium. When Junior was finally introduced during the pregame ceremonies, the standing ovation lasted for 31 seconds. All 55,596 fans made sure they were there on time to witness the electric moment. Now, unfortunately, Junior's mom was stuck waiting for an elevator to a private box and missed hearing, although she did hear, the ovation. The only glitch in the festivities was one that many fans would have been unaware of. For 81 seasons, the Finley Market shopkeepers had ended their parade at home plate and presented the Reds with a fruit basket and two flags. One flag, a new red, white, and blue model, was designed to be flown over the stadium for the entire season. The other flag carried a host of signatures and the market insignia. That flag was traditionally raised only on opening day and was then put away until the next opener. When the April 3 opener of 2000 was getting underway, it became apparent that someone had forgotten to deliver the flags to the stadium's upper deck where they were supposed to be hoisted over the left field foul line. In any event, when the game started, Junior received a second standing ovation, this one 34 seconds before his first at-bat. The Reds got off to a quick 3-0 lead, and Junior made the best catch of the day to end the first inning, snatching a 402-foot fly ball in front of the wall in dead center field. The stadium was practically shaking with glee. Four innings later, after the Milwaukee Brewers tied the game, the game went on a rain delay, and unfortunately, the umpires had to wave the white flag after three hours. Although the game officially ended in a tie, the Reds voluntarily elected to honor all opening day tickets for the next evening's game, too. It was the first time since 1966 that a Reds opener was rained out. The Brewers won the second game of the season the next night. There were no pregame festivities, but one tradition stayed alive after all. Both Finley Market flags were hoisted in their rightful places before the game. There you have it. That was quite a period of 10 years. A lot of controversy, but it all ended well with uh, Junior coming home. This is Randy Freaking signing off. And in the immortal words of Marty Brenneman, so long, everybody. <laughs>